Good morning, everybody. Nice to be with you again uh, in the capacity that I have the privilege uh, of this morning bringing God's Word to you. And I ask if you'd have your Bibles, please turn to Judges chapter 3, where we will pick off right where we left off last time with verse 12. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31. Please listen now as I read the Word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubic in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. And when Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him. <coughs> Excuse me. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And then they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of the Lord. And the land had rest for 80 years. <coughs> Excuse me. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anoth, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you are our king and that you rule over us and over all of our enemies. 
We see an example of that father in the text that you have given to us about Ehud and the king of Moab. And so we pray, Father, that you would enlighten our minds and the knowledge of Christ that we might be able to understand this text as you intended it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me for a minute. <coughs> I see that there's purpose for this water now. When you were growing up, did you ever have a bully pick on you, humiliating you in front of your friends? I did. I suspect a lot of people in this room have been in that situation, and you wished that you had someone that was bigger than the bully who was on your side and who could deal with the bully. He'd get that bully by the nose and start kicking him in the seat of the pants as hard as he could, humiliating the bully in front of his friends. And all the time, the bully would be calling for his mother. Well, we see in this passage that God as our king is sometimes like a protective big brother to his people, subduing our enemies and defending us when we are mistreated. And children, this is important because you learn the shorter catechism in this church. And it says there in verse 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us, subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and all of our enemies. God is a great king. Nobody may be able to resist his power, and he does overcome completely our enemies who are hurting us. Well, in the previous passage, we covered the story of Othniel, which is very short and rather bare of historical details when compared to the remainder of Judges. But it's used to prepare us for what comes next in this episode about Ehud and Eglon, the king of Moab. It's been 40 years since Othniel and his victory over the Mesopotamians. So a new generation has arisen in Israel, but it did not take long for corruption to settle in amongst God's people. And they provoked the Lord, and he raised up Eglon, who uh, conquered and oppressed God's people with the help of Moab's neighbors, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Moab was the country on the southeastern side of Israel. They were bordered on the Dead Sea, and they had to go around the northern or the southern end of the Dead Sea to get to Israel. And it tells us that the Moabites took possession of the city of Palms, which we know from Deuteronomy chapter 34 is the city of Jericho, or at least it was near the city of Jericho, which was destroyed when Joshua came into the land. And so, since the uh, Moabites had to get to Israel either through the north or the south end of the Dead Sea, they came in through the north end of the Dead Sea since this was the center of Israel and the gateway to conquer the land of God's people. And the text gives us a few details about Eglon that tell us the kind of king he was and what characterized his kingdom. First, according to verse 13, not only was the Jericho area strategically located, it was also an ideal place to live. 
being in the Jordan Valley, it w there was an abundance of water, and the soil was rich for agriculture. And further than that, it had a mild winter, which made it a pleasant place to dwell, so much so that uh, King Herod, in the time of Christ, uh, decided to build a great complex there as his winter headquarters because it was a very pleasant place to be. It was called the City of Palms because it was fam famous for its palm and balsam trees, which sort of reminds us of Palm Springs, California, where the movie stars go to spend some of their vacations. And so Eglon located his palace there to enjoy some of the best natural resources that his new vassal state had to offer. <clears throat> And verse 17 further tells us that Eglon was a very fat man. Probably he had grown so, or at least grew fatter, off the wealth that he had accumulated from draining Israel dry. And his appearance sort of goes along with the meaning of his name, which was young calf or bull. And so the picture of Eglon is one of this self-indulgent foreign king oppressing and bleeding Israel of her most prime resources, and under Eglon, Moab acted in the role of conqueror for 18 years. Now, if you compare this to the previous story, you know that the Lord brought judgment on Israel with an oppressor for eight years before. And so now God's judgment on his people is getting to be more severe. And so they were learning that if you play with sin, that God's judgment brings a chastening rod upon you. And if you continue to fool around with that sin... God's rod beats harder and it beats longer. So it is for us as the people of God. We learn from this that if we play with sin, that God brings his chastening rod upon us. And if we continue, if we do not respond as God expects us to do, God's chastening rod continues to beat on us until we give in to it. The fact that Ehud was selected by Israel to deliver the tribute money to the Moabites indicates that he was held in some esteem among his fellow Israelites. We also know that this because this was not Ehud's first trip to deliver the tribute. In verse 15, the verb tense of sent indicates continuing or habitual action. And so he had had this honor before this latest occasion in our text. And so on prior occasions, he observed the practices of the Moabite court, and he began to formulate a plan in his mind. And as it turns out, Ehud was left-handed. And this is ironic because he was a Benjamite, and Benjamin means son of the right hand. And most people today are right-handed, so this is an unusual trait uh, in him. And they usually put their swords or their knives on their left sides if they were right-handed because it made it easier for them to draw their swords out. But being left-handed, he put the sword on his right side and it made it easier for Ehud to draw it out. And the significance of this is the guards and the Moabite guards knew that most people carried a weapon 
on their left side. And so when they were checking people to make sure that they didn't do the king in, they would check on a person's left side. And so this enabled to uh, Ehud to carry a weapon that would be concealed when he entered into the king's presence. He also learned about Eglon, about his physique, and about his religious beliefs. First of all, being a fat man, he would not be agile enough to be able to defend himself should someone attack him. And further than that, a few miles away from their palace at Gilgal, there were gods or representative of gods. And Ehud learned that Eglon revered this god. We see evidence of this when Eglon stood up out of respect at the news of a message from God. And he could possibly be duped into a private audience by making him believe that one had a secret message from God. And so with this plan, Ehud made himself a dagger and arrived at the Moabite palace for one more delivery of tribute. And soon afterwards, all the Israelites left and then Ehud But verse 19 tells us that Ehud turned back at the images indicating that after leaving the king's presence, he initially traveled from the king's palace near Jericho to the stone images at Gilgal a few miles away and then returned to pay another visit to Eglon. Now, since Ehud gave no evidence of being an idolater, he did not go to the idols to worship, but it gave the appearance that he did go there to worship and received a secret message from the gods. And then he return, when he returned, it gave credibility to the fact that he did have a secret message from the gods. And if Eglon had sent somebody to follow him, he would have reported back and told him, yes, Ehud went to worship at the idols near Gilgal. And when Ehud arrived, he was ushered into the Eglon's presence again. Ehud announced that he had a secret message for him, whereupon Eglon dismissed his attendants and bodyguards. If Eglon didn't really believe that Ehud's message was of divine origin, why would he send away his protection in the presence of an enemy who had only a secret message of unknown source? And when they were alone, sure enough, Eglon finds out that Ehud does carry a message from God. The message was the point of his dagger. He thrust it into the king's belly with disgusting results. The king was so fat that the fat closed over the hilt or the handle of the dagger. And in verse 22, the best translation is that of the ESV, the waste matter of his intestines came out. Now, in saying this, I'm not trying to be shocking or obnoxious, but words like this are not typically used in scripture, so their presence here indicates there was something significant about this issue. And the king of Moab fell over dead, and Ehud simply exited through the porch doors. And before he did so, he locked the doors to the hallway and kept the soldiers in the dark about the assassination for at least a few moments so that he could make his escape. And as I said last time, the first major judge, Othniel, was the ideal judge because it doesn't show that Othniel had any negative qualities. 
And so, but as we move on through the book of Judges, we begin to see more and more that there were negative qualities about the later judges after Othniel. And so most scholars today, to one degree or another, criticize Ehud because they say he was deceptive in his practices with the king of Moab. First of all, he went to Gilgal to give the false impression that he went there to worship the idols that were there. And therefore, he was of the same thinking religiously that the king of Moab was. And then when he comes back, he says that he has a secret message not from Israel's God, not from Yahweh, but he uses the Hebrew term Elohim, which can describe the true God, or it also is used in Scripture to describe pagan gods. And so, so Ehud cunningly used Eglon's beliefs in some ambiguous language to sucker him into the right position for the kill. But as an Israelite, Ehud should have known something of the Scriptures, and he should have known that Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11 says, You shall not steal... You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Dealing falsely is just another way of saying don't be deceitful with people, including your enemies. This wasn't the way to represent the God of truth. Now, I realize in other places in Scripture that God's people lied to protect innocent life. For example, Rahab, when the spies of Israel came to the city of Jericho, Rahab hid the spies and lied to protect them from the soldiers that were searching for them. I also realized that the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh about the birth of the Israelite children so that they would not be killed. However, in such cases as those, to have told the truth would certainly have resulted in the deaths of God's people. There was no other option for them. And they weren't lying to carry out murder, but to prevent murder. However, this was not necessarily the case with Ehud. No one's life was in immediate danger as in the other uh, cases. And Ehud could have raised an army and just gone into open combat with the king of Moab, like we're going to see with Barak in the next chapter in Judges. And so, even though one could debate whether Ehud's deception was sinful or not, I think we have to admit that compared to Othniel, Ehud's method was at least a little questionable, so that we at least wonder if he didn't do God's work God's way. However, positively, it cannot be overemphasized that Ehud willingly undertook a great personal risk without any assurance from the Lord that he would be successful. This is especially praiseworthy when it's seen against the background of those judges who follow, like Barak, who wants assurance by requiring Deborah to go with him into battle, or Gideon, who wants assurance by the sign of the fleece, or Jephthah, who attempts to obtain God's assurance through a rash vow. And so Ehud demonstrated great courage and commitment in serving the Lord, and he was not the only saint in redemptive history to do so. Also, obviously, David, in fighting the giant Goliath, did the same thing. And in the New Testament, Mary, 
the mother of Jesus endangered her life when she submitted to God's will by having a birth out of wedlock. She could be stoned for suspected adultery in doing so. And so throughout the centuries, God's people have been called upon at times to lay it all on the line in God's service. And when you compare the stories of these people, uh, how the people of our generation uh, appear so uncommitted. Not only could they not be counted upon to risk a great deal for the Lord, they won't even undertake uh, responsibilities, common responsibilities that the Lord lays upon them. They don't have enough commitment, for example, even to become a member of the church because they don't want someone, the elders in the church, interfering in their lives or someone asking them to do something uh, in the service of the church. That's common Christian discipleship. It's like baptism. Can a person really claim to be a Christian who is not willing to be baptized and become a member of the church? I don't think so. What a lack of commitment people in our country display compared to the people back then. And so we must be committed to serving our Lord and willing to take on the responsibilities he lays before us, even when at times it exposes us to some risk, as with Ehud. After Ehud escaped, he called out Israel to battle against Moab. The Moabite despot had been killed. And thus Ehud was shown to be the one chosen by God to lead the people of Israel. And he led them to victory over the Moabites. And the Lord further granted rest to his people for 80 years after the defeat to Moab. This is the longest period recorded in the book of Judges of rest that God provided for his people. And there are two levels or two perspectives from which we should view each one uh, of the stories in the book of Judges. And we have already seen the first. The first is the human perspective in our analysis of Ehud's behavior. But also there is divine perspective as to what is the Lord doing through this story. So what can we learn about God's gracious nature from what he does in this passage? Well, first of all, we learn a lesson indirectly about God from the humor and the biting satire of the story. If you forget for the moment that you're a 21st century American and put yourself in the place of the Israelites who were originally reading this story, you can better appreciate how they must have laughed until they cried at this episode. First of all, the inept guards missed the dagger when Ehud showed up on his return visit to Eglon. And then Eglon foolishly dismissed them during the audience with Ehud. At this point, you can begin to hear the Israelite readers snickering in the background as they see the story unfold. And when Eglon, the king of Moab, the oppressor, who has grown fat on the best of Israelites' tribute and resources, was killed, you can hear those same Israelites break out in cheers as Eglon ends up wallowing in his own body waste like a pig in the mud. How many Israelites had suffered the same fate at his hands? And added to this picture is the fact that since Eglon's name means calf or bull, he now appears like a fatted calf that has been prepared for sacrificial slaughter. 
And finally, when the guards are locked out and think that the monarch is simply using the facilities, the Israelite readers must have been rolling on the floor with laughter at the keystone cop-like bungling of the Moabite soldiers as Ehud makes good his escape. So many little coincidences came together to cause Ehud's plan to succeed. At any point, he could have been discovered and killed on the spots. And so surely the Israelites sensed that God's hand worked behind the scenes for things to turn out as they did. And this must have brought them great joy and security to know that even though they didn't deserve God's favor, in the final analysis, God took a dim view of those who tyrannized his people. Even though God initially was the one that raised up the tyrants for such a task, And so he allowed the hardship to run its course for a while until his purpose was accomplished. And then he said, enough. And he made a laughing stock out of Israel's enemies for abusing his people. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today, it should also bring us a sense of security and joy to know that God cares so much for us And then in the same way, he defends us from those who would harm us. Those that attack us for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ do not get away with humiliating us and treating us in such a bad fashion. Even when we don't deserve it, he makes us able to laugh again after our sorrows are removed and to smile over the funny ways that he uses to deliver us from our child. And further, why shouldn't we rejoice? Because he has provided his people, us, with rest as well. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." But the rest that the Lord gives is not a temporal rest from physical oppression like it was for the Israelites. Instead, it is an eternal rest from the oppression of the penalty and the power of sin. J.C. Ryle further says about this rest in Matthew, There is a rest in Christ, rest of conscience and rest of heart, rest built on pardon of all sin, rest flowing from peace with God. Jesus bore the penalty of his people's sin on the cross so that through faith in him, they might have the rest of forgiveness and right standing with God. And so if you're here today and you don't know what this rest is all about, you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to come to repentance and faith. Repentance is doing away with your sin and turning from that sin to God. Turning to God in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gives you that forgiveness of sins and provides you with a righteousness that is credited to you not because you are righteous, but because he is righteous and God counts his righteousness to you. It's not something that you merit, but it is simply graciously given to you. And so I ask you to come to Christ today if you're not a follower of Christ or if you've only kind of followed Christ half-heartedly, accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. For surely you and I owe our love and service to him 
who is not only who always does for our highest good and our spiritual welfare in his plans let's close in prayer heavenly father we give thanks to you for the rest that you have provided for us in christ we see a physical example of this in the rest that you gave your people israel from physical oppression we do not have physical enemies in exactly the same way that they did father but we still have the world, the flesh, and the devil who opposes us. And some people in this world are their instruments to work evil in our lives. We thank you, Father, that we will eventually have complete rest from them as well. One day with you when you provide the consummation of that eternal rest in Christ. And we give thanks for all that you've done for us, Father, and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.